the music talk show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another music talk show, research communication radio show on Radio Nova by Musicology Department Early Career Researchers. Today, um, we are having a special episode dedicated to holidays, since we're in the sort of in-between uh, from Halloween or All Saints and Christmas. And in the studio today, I have James with me. Hi, James. Hi, Eva. <laughs> and James will tell us about his research of 14th century English um, medieval music. Is that yeah. correct? Is yeah, that, that's is that right. true? Yeah. That's straight from your website. I did my oh, research. Oh, great. I'm glad it tells, <laughs> tells you something at all. <laughs> so, but, maybe, but I think you'll do a better job explaining what is it that you research and, and what, what's your work like in, in the department. Well, um, so I research, as you said, 14th century English music um, <laughs> and uh, in particular I look at uh, polyphony which is music written in more than one part. So much of medieval music right, is plain chant, plain chant is associated with medieval music so much. Um, what I look at is uh, that multi-voice music and in particular the books in which it survives. This okay. super interesting books. Yeah, I think I will ask you more because I think already you said things like plain chants. And I, I mean, mm. for me, like, for instance, ideas like monophony and polyphony, always think in, in, in terms of like, you know, uh, monophony is like, okay, so there's a melody and someone sings a melody, right? And polyphony is like, oh, you have different voices. But, I, but, but these are all terms that I imagine have been changing a lot, right? And I guess maybe we can start with um, how do we know what we know about things that happened well it seems now like quite long time ago mm -hmm. <laughs> well uh, polyphony you're right that the terms have changed quite a lot i think um, polyphony i think when people when music analysts talk about a polyphonic texture nowadays uh, i think they're talking about something uh, a bit more than what we understand as polyphony um, from a medieval history point of view okay. which is polyphony just means more than one voice whereas I think that um, in modern analysis it's it's come to mean um, something closer to counterpoint something closer to voices that are moving with and also against each other mm. sort of dancing around each other yeah that's kind of the idea that's how it's come to um, yeah that's what people think of it now. I, I guess it's because instrumental music in itself probably um, as a sort of took over uh, the music production a bit later, isn't it? I don't know. Well, um, there was always instrumental music. It's just we don't, the, the sources for it don't survive. Why is that so? Well, books. Yeah, let's talk about books. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about books. Books are great. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should say that we have a very, very limited number of sources uh, for this, um, for 14th century music in general, especially so in England. And um, almost all of them are fragmentary. Mm. Almost all of them are small fragments, maybe a page here or a page there, from what used to be clearly much uh, larger, a much larger collection. So we have maybe around 90, for example, sources uh, of, of 14th century uh, okay. polyphony, right. which is actually, I mean, it's not, it's not a number to scoff at. It's quite a number, but a lot of those sources are, are strips of paper where maybe a few notes 
<laughs> so you have to kind, kind of recover the, the the musical text from those scraps. Yeah, I mean, you, is it, often it's impossible, but people try. <laughs> uh, but can you so can you then explain why uh, we have more books on uh, vocal music than uh, instrumental music? Uh, well, uh, the answer to that, I think, is the church. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, there, there is evidence for, not much, but there is evidence that, that multi-voice music in England, for example, was sung outside of the church, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later yeah. um, regarding some of the Christmas music specifically. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, polyphony did come from the church, and books were very expensive items. Mm. If they were manuscripts in parchment, then parchment uh, came from the skin of animals, right? And it and it actually took a lot of animals, <laughs> the, the deaths of the slaughter and <laughs> a preparation of the skins of, of lots of animals yeah. to create these books. So a very famous um, Anglo-Saxon manuscript um, called the Lindisfarne Gospels, mm -hmm. I think about 1,500 animals died in order to make uh, a book. A book, yeah. It's an impressive manuscript, but perhaps it's a bit too much death to justify a project like that, even as one as uh, remarkable as the Lindisfarne Gospels. Are we getting into ethics of the 14th uh, century we, church we now? Be, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they didn't see it as a particular problem. In fact, investment in manuscript books economical investment in manuscript books was and could be a, a display of, of one's wealth and one's power. Yeah. Um, when it comes to sources of polyphony, often what you find is quite lavish books, but not as lavish as other types of book, not as lavish, for example, as big liturgical books. Mm. These are books that are used in church that contain plain chant or contain rubrics for how one um, sh can carry out the liturgy. Okay. Uh, why is that so? Would you say, because I imagine if it's a um, book that is used for uh, singing, somehow it seems there is also utilitarian element to that, right? So would that mean that I don't know, books that are less lavish or those that are being used more often? Is there some sort of like well, functionality element to all of this? I think that's absolutely right. Oh, um, thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's all to do with how these books were used. And um, these big liturgical books um, would normally be kept in the great church. They'd mm. normally be kept on a lectern. Um, right, like um, like now actually, like in in church yeah. we see these sort of. I mean, they're not as lavish, but they're still like the the, the, the sort of exactly uh, the books that are yeah exactly. And when they weren't kept in the church itself, they were kept in the sacristy um, um, with the priest. What we know of these sources of polyphony, however, is that it's more. It was more often the case that they were privately owned. Right. They, they seem. I get the impression that they, it's more common that they were owned by individuals. And there's no evidence that they were kept with the other liturgical books. There's also no evidence that they were kept in the community libraries. Mm -hmm. So they really, these books of polyphony. So they weren't seen as knowledge as much? Well, it's all to do with how they thought about polyphony and, and, and what role... 
polyphony had. And um, Roger Bowers once wrote in a in a wonderful article um, titled "Laissez-faire." He called it. We can add this to the after, so people can read it after they listen. Oh to yeah, please show. do. It's, it's a great article. He compares uh, polyphony in in the Middle Ages to flower arranging. Mm. He basically says that well, polyphony was great. It was it was intended to elevate um, uh, potentially a liturgical feast or. Intended to, you know, adorn mm-hmm. some sort of ritual, and it was great while it lasted, but mm. soon, you know, nobody was interested in it anymore, and you had to get new flowers in. Right. Like the the point being that musical sources of polyphony, as uh, particularly polyphony, became obsolete very quickly, and we estimate that it was you know two or three decades of the average uh, lifespan for composition so we're actually getting into something that could be uh, you know like i mean coming from more sort of contemporary music um studies i guess uh, it's interesting because i feel like then we could like as researchers we could apply some of the, like popular music theory to these kind of ideas right like how how um people wanted like new music after some time right what was the fashion that was changing why music in that particular contest only served relatively shortly. I mean, of course, two, three decades now <laughs> seem like a long time, right? Like now now we have trends of, of music that I guess die out much quicker. But I think that the idea that, so polyphony was, I, I suppose, quite a pop popular song in that sense? Well, uh, that's, <laughs> that's one of the big questions. You brought up a lot of right. really sort of interesting uh, themes there. Um, one of the things which I think is important is is that they didn't, in the sense, have uh, in in a great sense have a culture of musical antiquarianism. They they didn't tend to hang on right. to old music. So there was well, no value in the sort of uh, older music. Is that what you're trying to well, sort of? For Nostalgia wasn't part. such a big thing, I suppose. For a lot, I mean, within a, a, yeah. a lifetime, with sure. But um, it's it it seems that that there are great exceptions to this, like Trouvere song, um, the, the 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 which is v- uh, vernacular song from uh, the aristocracy in France okay. in twelfth thirteenth centuries. They survive in massive uh, compendia of these books and some of these books were written a hundred years after the songs themselves were written so these are big um, these books are essentially reception histories right. of of this tradition of true song so that's one instance in which um, you could say it's um, in a sense musical antiquarianism but in terms of uh, the, the 14th century polyphony that I look at we don't really see that so much okay mm. that is interesting I think it's a good time now to maybe listen to something yeah. uh, so we can sort of get a sense of what we're talking about here um, you brought some some musical examples I did and can you tell us a little bit about um, one, one of them I think we 
we thought we will start with Gabriel from he Heaven King. Yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so great. can you tell us? It's that? Middle English, so really don't don't worry about the pronunciation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or should we listen and then you want to talk about it after? No, I can talk. I can introduce right. it first. Go on. I think. Um, so uh, this is our first Christmas track, mm. and it's. It's it's a bit Christmas, but it's uh, a bit also the run up to Christmas. It's it's about uh, the Annunciation. It's about Gabriel um, announcing to the Virgin Mary that she is carrying the Son of God, uh, which is a great news. Great news, yeah. <laughs> And um, this song uh, has a really interesting background. So it was originally a Latin monophonic song. A single melody called Angelus ad Virginem, so it's a Latin texted song, and it arrived in England, or perhaps it was English. We don't really know where it comes from, but we first find it in the 13th century, and it seems to have been really popular in England, and it also seems to have endured, uh, which is related yeah. to the theme we um, we were just talking about. Um, this is a monophonic song. It's not a polyphonic song, at least at that time. And um, it was mentioned over a hundred years later in Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. In um, in the Miller's Tale, the Clerk of Oxenford uh, says that the, uh, I think the, the, the line is the whole um, um, sort of rang with song and Angelus ad virginem he sung. Mm. Uh, so it's... Uh, It, so it was we can see like symbols and patterns of that song echoing through the other forms of exactly. cultural text. Mm. Exactly, yeah. So it's an influential song, it I would say. That, it yeah. was clearly a banger. They loved yeah. it. <laughs> They loved it. And it's a great song. It's well, a great tune. Yeah. Right. Well, let's, let's listen to it then. For those tuning in just now, this is the music talk show, um, UIO's Musicology Department Communication Show, and today I'm here with James Tomlinson talking about medieval Christmas music. Mm -hmm. And we just listened to one example of such music. Um, and just before, uh, before we went into this musical interlude, we were discussing how this piece has been sort of circulating in different sort of contexts and cultural um, Yeah, spheres at the time, which is the time is, um, is mm. it? You said it starts at 13 and yeah, it's a 13th century song. So how how did the music change? Let's say if if it was a banger, <laughs> as yeah, we discussed previously, <laughs> um, what what kind of like changes that like a, a, a piece of music like this go through mm. uh, throughout the time? Well, it was uh, contrafacted, uh, which means that it was set the melody, uh, which was clearly a popular melody, was set to another text. And it was set to an English text, uh, Gabriel from Heaven King, which is uh, uh, the Middle English text that, that you heard uh, in, th in this performance. And the performers here were um, Liber Unusualis, the group, um, from their um, album Fly Leaves, which is a great album. I really recommend listening to it. And... Um, It, it shows that, the, that what people like to do if they had a tune that they really enjoyed is they like to set it into their own language. Oh, right. And it's, it's, 
and it's um, it really shows how popular songs were reworked. And you may have also heard from from that track is that they start singing in more than one voice. It becomes polyphonic. And actually, in a 14th century English source, uh, the source in which we we find this with its English text, there's also another voice added. So they, some community, some person, uh, loved Angelus Ad Virginem, the Latin monophonic song, and they decided to make a Middle English polyphonic setting from it. A cover, essentially. A cover, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, uh, this is interesting, right? How um, maybe I'll ask you a little bit more about this kind of, uh, I guess, identity element that starts coming in then with like a local language, right? Mm. But um, but since this this show today is also about Christmas to some extent, to most extent, can <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe talk a bit about the context? So um, how, let's say, would a song like this be performed or listened to? Um, in in 14th century, let's say, what kind of like rituals regarding? Um, well, I guess in this case, waiting for Christmas mm. uh, were there. Well, there's no easy answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, like most things in the Middle Ages, we we just don't know uh, where a lot of this music uh, was performed. In fact, all of the examples uh, that, that I I brought for this radio show, uh, we we just don't know. Con the specifically the context in which we can guess, but we don't know s um, for sure right. which context they were performed in. Um, and that's partly because of this strange ephemeral status of polyphony. A lot of polyphony is set to texts that aren't strictly ritual. So like the Kyrie eleison, for example, be these ritual texts if we find a polyphonic setting of the Kyrie eleison. When you mean ritual, you're now referring to like religious ritual yeah, specifically, right. right? Because yeah, of course, I, I would ask that, I'm sure that there were like s secular uh, rituals relating to like yeah, Christmas absolutely. celebration as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm using ritual here as just a yeah. byword for liturgical. Mm. Yeah. Um, in terms of the text of the liturgy, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so, so if we found, for example, a Gloria in Excelsis Deo, uh, or a Credo, yeah. uh, or a Sanctus Nanius, or Ite Missa Est, something like this, um, then in, in a polyphonic form, then we can assume that it was used, that polyphonic song was used as a substitute in the liturgy. But these songs which maybe they're, they're in English, uh, we we can't yeah. assume that they were used in the church because right. um, it wouldn't have been considered appropriate to sing. Yeah, it's um, too early for Reformation, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean the the idea that the liturgy um, was purely Latin and contained no vernacular at all has been problematized in in recent years there are okay. examples when the vernacular did actually enter the lit medieval liturgy but not i think to the extent that you'd sing a whole song um in middle english okay. but we just can't rule it out right mm. okay so do we know so but, but do we know anything about songs like this then or do we just like i'm sure that there are questions that are being asked and research done outside of the religious ritual right mm, yeah. so 
would would the, um for instance i don't know like um i imagine uh, it also depends on the region and you are focusing on english uh 14th century right but yeah. but uh, because i'm i'm imagining there is also sort of you know like pagan traditions that are kind of still i guess are intertwined in some ways with christmas at the yeah, time and yeah, then absolutely. how does that come in into music and song or mm. well yeah i mean it's um th- there were lots of very fun uh, rituals and uh, th- th- there are lots of um, interesting festivals that happened around Christmas and as you mentioned um, many of them were borrowed from uh, the pagan festivals um, and um, one of those was the Feast of Fools okay and the <laughs> intrigued <laughs> uh, well, the Feast of Fools is famous it's infamous um, b- because it involved the the election of um, a, a sort of fake bishop or a fake um, um, archbishop or yeah, some some, some of, yeah, liturgical clergy, yeah. yeah deacon whatever some liturgical figure and um, there were there were lots of rather rude and um, <laughs> unseemly um, uh, displays that went on within the church and um, the idea behind this was some sort of disruption of the social order of, of, of the church but also um, medieval society more broadly has been interpreted as this sort of um, role reversal which okay. which people got a lot of kick out of <laughs> yeah um, it's, um, it's sometimes in in some regions we have evidence for really quite wild displays so for example there there's record um, um, Max Harris talks about this in, in his book um, Sacred Folly on the Feast of Fools, but in, in some German churches, somebody pretending to be King Herod uh, from mm-hmm. from the story of Christ's birth, the Bethlehem story. Um, King Herod, um, somebody pretending to be this figure, charges through the church, screaming and, and wailing, pretending to be King Herod, you know, in the, in the middle of a yeah. service. It's, it's mad. <laughs> this is, yeah. I guess this is um, this is interesting, right? Because this is such like theatricality and playfulness to that, and actually treating um, Bible or or sort of religious texts as stories, really, as story stories that um, are also entertaining and interesting to read and and perform, right? Oh yeah, massively. And um, these stories were sort of declaimed in 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 various ways, and one liturgical genre well or one one genre of, of, of story of, of, of song if you like was the liturgical play and mm-hmm. um, the, these are plays that happened within the church and th- um, and a few of the singers within the church a few of the clergy would pretend to be uh, various uh, people with within a bible story so right. that that story about Herod running through these German churches wailing. Uh, but for example, the um, the liturgical play around that there were were very common around Easter time. So you'd have three male priests pretending to be the three Marys <laughs> at, right. at Christ's tomb, <laughs> waiting for Christ to, to rise. So um, these... Uh, would the, these so let's say if if we have a performance of of let's say uh, some clergyman doing a story from the Bible in the church, uh, would there be music and what language would that be sung in? Mm. Well, it would be sung um, in Latin. Right, because it's in the church. We think, yeah, because it's in the church. Yeah. Right. Um, we, at least that's sort of 
as as far as we can tell from the evidence, um, it, it would be in Latin. Okay, so that, that's still church, but is there any, so for instance, um, some traditions that are associated with Christmas that are kind of outside church, like, um, like caroling, for example. This was something that... Um, uh, we talked about before the show, right? And, and 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 I was wondering what kind of like are there traditions that are still sort of we still kept um, from this 14th mm. century around sort of church around Christmas, but not necessarily you know within the mass framework. Yeah, so caroling is yeah, it's it's the perfect example of this, and um, it has a really interesting background. It comes from the, the French um, musical genre carole. Mm-hmm. Um, or carola in, in, in old French and uh, that denoted a dance song which you would sing in a round um, it wasn't necessarily a Christmas song uh, okay. the word for that was um, Noel mm-hmm. Noel we still have yeah. with this word um, but at some point the word carol went from being specifically about these dance songs, these dance forms, to any joyful song or any sort of popular joyful song. Um, But we don't really know when that took place. Right. So from medieval England, we have um, about 125 carols. Um, Many of them are macaronic, so they're in more than one language, usually. um, Oh, I uh, love that. English macaronic. so they're either usually in English with little bits of Latin or Latin with bits of English. And um, they, about maybe two-thirds of them are for Christmas, but they're not all for Christmas. Some of okay. them are political. Uh, some of them are uh, for other uh, major liturgical feasts like Easter. Right. Um, so, and, and that's the whole like tradition of going from door to door caroling. Mm. Is that something? Because if it was a dance, you probably... But you wouldn't go from door to door just dancing, or, or would you? I mean, how <laughs> how did that come into the picture? Well, we don't really we don't really know about right. this stuff. That that's the thing, and we don't really know where um, or who really perform these carols. They um, were usually in more than one language, so it's they're usually um, thought to have been sung in a context other than the church for that reason. It's been hypothesized that they were used in the refectory of a church where um, the hall, the dining hall of a um, of a community, a monastery or something like that, sung potentially by the singers who did sing in the church, but not actually sung in the church itself, sung in another right. context, maybe sung even at the gates of the monastery to the public outside that's another theory and um or or sung maybe even in the chapter house in another room in another place but we don't really know there's no evidence but one of these carols is uh which i i brought for for, um for the listeners Mm -hmm. um is particularly interesting it's a carol that appears in um the written manuscript which is a manuscript from the earlier part of the 15th century and it's we know who wrote it actually because it it it, it tells us that it was written by um, a guy called uh, Smart and uh, yeah that's right <laughs> um, and Smart uh, we know was a singer at Exeter Cathedral uh, and it's thought that this book this manuscript comes from Exeter Cathedral 
And in, in fact, at the top of this particular carol is a little Latin rubric. It says, in die nativitatis, which means on the day of the nativity. Um, this tells us that this carol was for Christmas Day, oh, okay. in effect. Um, but we don't really know exactly where or by whom yeah. it was sung. But we have a pretty good indication from the text. Because the text Should is we? all about... Yeah. Should we listen to it and then we can... Yes, let's do it. Oh, yeah, okay, great. And we're back uh, once again for all of those who only joined us now on Radio Nova. Um, this is the Music Talk Show, a uh, research communication uh, show from the Music College Department at the University of Oslo. And I'm here with James Tomlinson talking about medieval Christmas music. And we just heard a carol. And we were talking a little bit about rituals in church and mm. outside church r related to music and, and, and sort of forms of performing that music. And I was wondering, what was the role of, of, of author, of composer in these uh, in, 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 for example, pieces like this, you mentioned that this particular piece has like quite you, you know quite a lot about that, I suppose. But in general, like how, wh what, yeah, what was the what how what was the role of of composer of of author in in these contexts? Mm. Well, with polyphony, um, we really don't know the names of many composers before around fourteen hundred. Right. There are a couple of exceptions, uh, but we. Most music survives without attribution. In in the books, we don't tend to find their names, but that starts to change. If we think there's a big collection of um, polyphony um, from uh, the early part of the 15th century, and it contains repertory around those that the turn of the 15th century, uh, called the Old Hall Manuscript, and that contains a lot of uh, composers' names. So we know about people like Damn it, and Forest and Power and all of these names, mm -hmm. and Nicholas Sturgeon. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but before that, um, before that, we we don't really have that many names, uh, and that's a shame. Yeah. But it plays into what we know about the way in which they thought about composers and composing. There weren't professional composers at this time. Well, how, how would you define that? As in, like, people wouldn't get paid for it? or um Well, people were clergy. Right. You know, and th th they might be professional singers. They might be lay clerks uh, right. singing in a oh, church. But there's just no profession as such in that sense. Is that what you... Like, how do yeah, you define professional no in that sense, right? They like people weren't hired as right. composers until the, the later part of the 15th century. Because, you know, like that was something that uh, when we started our conversation, I, I had this thought that, you know, we're talking about all of that music coming from church and all of this material coming from church as an institution, but it's also university as an institution that is very close to that idea, right? So because a lot of, um, like, you know, as you mentioned, books and a lot of knowledge was coming from the church as institution as sort of, yeah, like a, as a knowledge based as well. So... I think it's quite interesting to think about uh, different ways of producing culture and, and the knowledge of the sense. So like, you know, are these people writers or are they priests? Are they mm. uh, composers or are they priests? You know, like these kind of professions that are not really separated yet. Um, I don't know if that's something like that uh, comes, comes up uh, in your 
research at all? Is that something that you like? Yeah, is that a, a debate about about these kind of labor distributions yeah. in the 14th century? Ab- yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the central questions of, of right. my own project. Um, thinking about who produced this music, why did they produce it, and how did it circulate? Because we really don't know. The idea is that before the middle of the 14th century, polyphony, the development of polyphony, was led by great Benedictine monasteries and Augustinian monasteries um, because they were massively politically connected, they were powerful, they were rich, um, they had the facilities and the personnel to cultivate polyphony, and they did, but the idea of the greater monastery as some sort of monolithic institution which circulates music around the country, sure, but circulates music as kind of an autonomous network of monasteries. This, this idea, I think, is a little bit too simple um, because if you start to look at the evidence, you actually see these other connections um, appearing in other places. And um, one one of the books that I'm uh, really interested in, and I'm writing about a lot in in, in my thesis, um, I think was actually put together in a university context. And it's one of the only um, books that we have that we can really say that about. Mm. And um, that is um, books of polyphony specifically. Of course, we have lots of books which, which were produced at a university but we don't really have any concrete proof that polyphony uh, was sung or cultivated at universities. What this book allows us to say is that even if it wasn't sung or cultivated there, it was at least circulated there. It passed through um, the this sort of academic milieu, which w- comprised people from all factions of the church. It, com- it comprised... Um, visiting monks um, there, there were colleges set up for um, to receive monks from different um, monasteries around the country like Gloucester College for example there were the Grey Friars the Franciscans there were the Dominicans and then there were the secular colleges think Merton College for example in Oxford um, and um, so this the university um, which you mentioned I think and it's really important to think about is uh, was a place where people from all over were rubbing shoulders and they were giving each other stuff. And we have records of books moving all over the country um, and, and, and books passing not only between people from the same um, religious um, faction, if you like, but between those different groups. So it was really uh, the way in which polyphony was was uh, transmitted is it seems to be really really messy, and it's and, and it, it reminds us that we still have very very uh, partial idea of of the, of the social mechanisms by which um, polyphony uh, um, circulated in medieval England. That is very interesting, and actually made me think about then 
kind of coming back to to the whole Christmas topic as well. Uh, then the the role of festivities in in these kind of so- social, um, as you said, um, social conglomerates. I don't <laughs> know, like social sort of uh, concentrated social uh, hubs or or, or or places. And there were a few moments in our conversation when you mentioned that these songs that were like Christmas songs, right, or sort of these in between religious and sec- like secular. Um, uh, genres, I suppose, or or, or topics, yeah. would might have had some like political dimension or some sort of like, and I'm interested in that. How other topics, other contexts, other sort of parts of life um, that were related to perhaps social issues or or political issues or you know sort of critical, um, you know, criticizing the the I don't know the king or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, uh, the the bishop making fun of of the sort of you know local local power uh, mm-hmm. structures. How did that play into this? I mean, it's 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 easy to abstract these issues and, and talk right. about like the um, the way in which um, polyphony was cultivated and transmitted, and um, it's. But really, when it comes down to it, we have to think: Well, how did people use these things? How did people use these books? Was it a guy getting his mates to essentially, even if he was a monk, he's still you know getting his mates together? to sing through these songs because he wants to. Maybe it's not in a church. Maybe it's not as part of part of a liturgy. Maybe it's not in a formal ritual setting, be that ritual um, as we would take it in, in a liturgical setting or ritual in a, in a, in a broader sense of social ritual. Um, but it could just be these chance meetings, these off-the-cuff um, uh, performances um, that, that generated a lot of the motivation to, to write yeah. some of these music, but and also generated um, potentially um, more room for this kind of um, dissent, if you like. From from what survives, there's not a huge amount of, of sort of dissenting material. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that'd be great. Um, there there are examples um, where we have very clearly pol- directly political um, pieces of music. There's there's a very famous carol, for example, uh, called Deo Gracias Anglia, which talks about the victory of um, Henry V at Agincourt. Mm-hmm. It's called the Agincourt Carol, and it uh, survives in uh, a role um, called the Agincourt Roll because of it contains the Agincourt Carol, which <laughs> lords uh, Henry V's victory. And the format of this particular source is really interesting. It's not a book in the uh, traditional sense, with a spine and a binding and, and various pages you can turn. It's a roll. So it's a, imagine a big medieval scroll, and you yeah. um, unwind it, and uh, you find uh, all of these carols right there. And And this really speaks to um, actually how some of these compositions circulated as well because roles were not really presentation items they weren't particularly pretty items they were items which were very very portable yeah. you could stick in your rucksack and you can take it with you to Winchester and then you can sing your stuff there and uh, as, they weren't as you do. yeah they weren't really designed to last particularly yeah. um, but None of these books were particularly, as we were talking about earlier, they, they fell in, you know, they became obsolete quite quickly, yeah. rapidly compared to music of later centuries. Um, so none of them were particularly designed to last more than a few decades anyway. Right. Um, well, can I, that's interesting. And I wonder, um, within this, like, sort of 
uh, framework where, where we have, you know, sort of little memory left. And we're talking about sort of like relative pluralism of, of these hubs like universities and monasteries, right? But this still is like, well, I mean, it still is like a small part of society. Are there signs of, of broader migration through these songs? Are there examples of uh, knowledge circulation that kind of, you know, spreads outside of, of, of let's say, Britain itself, you know? Access to education, access to, to, to universities, etc. It was also rather limited at the time. How do people outside of, of the sort of the, the social class that was uh, had access to to powerful positions as in the church or university and mm. how did the broader society come in through through um, through music and through maybe perhaps like example of caroling like genre that is kind of I guess more open mm. yeah well it's really interesting I mean in terms of international exchange mm-hmm. um, we, we do find that French pieces turn up in English sources English pieces turn up in French sources in the Middle Ages of course England often owned parts of France various parts of France at various times there was a lot of um, exchange of musical materials in addition to every other kind of material um, from the, um, the island uh, to the continent so to speak and um, it, it really was sort of a, 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 a thriving culture of exchange, I think. And, and people were very mobile, not only within their own country, but between countries. But as you point out, it was usually people of a certain class. And, and the, the clerics, for example, uh, the itinerant preachers, there are some interesting connections, for example, between um, the Franciscans in northern Italy and in England, and so that there are a couple of sources of English music in northern Italy, presumably brought over by um, uh, by Franciscans at some point, and a lot of books, uh, funnily enough, Franciscan books that we think were copied in Oxford that end up in North Italian libraries. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so th- there are lots of connections, but as you point out tend to be of a certain rank in terms of the way that people in the other classes interacted with this music unfortunately we just don't have this kind of evidence um and um it's they they interacted with of course they interacted with music um music uh, secular music of course existed it's just that we don't really have much you know, real musical sources where the music is written down. We have some instrumental music Mm. um, that's written down and some books of um, medieval tunes and that sort of thing. In terms of polyphony, though, from people um, that weren't part of that um, either academic or or noble or clerical um, rank, you know, normal people, let's say the majority of people mm. um we really don't don't have no. that kind of evidence we know that they experienced music at certain points like in the corpus christi plays um in the, in the middle ages with massive celebrations where um often they were organized by the local monasteries and they would bring together all of the guilds and all of the different factions of society they'd bring everybody together and each would provide elements of costume or staging or or special effects they had special effects too wow. um and um like pulleys and all of these and smoke and all of these systems um and we know that some of these plays uh, would uh, end with 
everybody singing a Te Deum, for example, mm. or we know that boys would sing here or or there. So we know that people came into contact with music. In terms of how people came into contact with polyphony, um, we assume that it was on special occasions right. on on and that is liturgical polyphony and um, sacred polyphony it was really associated with um, these major feasts like uh, when when they would go to church everybody had to go to church on christmas day yeah um, it was it was required of you at least in medieval england um, and so that was potentially um, a, a time where people would normal people would get to listen to this stuff um, and it brings up another really interesting, I think, point, which is that now, nowadays we're bombarded by imagery, we're bombarded by music. I mean, I, I listen to music, you know, when I'm most hours of the day, <laughs> when I'm not doing something else. Um, and we, we just listen to so much of it that it loses something. It loses that awesome power that potentially normal people, or even you know the people that practice the stuff, would have felt, would have experienced when they heard this stuff. But I think then there is a difference uh, in um, sort of consuming and, and sort of participating in music in that in that sense. And I am bridging my comment now because we're kind of running out of time a little bit. But I do want to ask you just a few last questions, and one of them is your active participation in this music making. So. You are a, um, well, maybe you can tell yourself your engagement with choir music. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, personally, I started uh, singing choirs seriously when I arrived at university. And um, in, I think my second year of university, I decided I wanted to get together a, a group of singers that sang in the various chapel choirs in Oxford, like me, um, to, to get together and sing through some Dufay. Dufay is a um, 15th century French composer and um, so we did and we had a great time but we thought you know we can actually we can actually do something with this this is this is good <laughs> we, we can we can perform this we we put on a concert and then we put on another and then it grew we were, we were very lucky to be uh, awarded um, the inaugural ensemble development bursary from the Steely Antico Foundation mm, thank you um, and uh, yeah, we um, we recently released our, our first disc, which is exciting. But we perform medieval music. We perform um, 14th century, 15th century music. A lot of 15th century music. Where actually. we can find your album? Uh, you can find it on any streaming platform. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> under the title <laughs> um, "The Sword and the Lily," oh. and I should say Very that poetic. the the uh, the, on the ensemble is called Fount and Origin. Mm. Um, Again, we will provide listeners with more details on this because I think it's uh, it's important. Right, <laughs> but I, I I I really enjoy the experience of of singing this music. Historical uh, musical practice, historically informed performance, whatever we call it, is uh, a big issue, and we don't have time to talk about it um, on um, on this uh, radio show. But it's it's another really interesting topic, and I, I think the the essential point is that we're never really going to know how people uh, perform this music. We're never going to produce a recording or a performance which corresponds exactly to 
music of the past. Everything is um, necessarily everything necessarily involves a great degree of interpretation. But that process is, I think it's great. I think it's, it's fun. Absolutely. And getting to sing in these amazing churches, music from 700, 600 years ago is, is wonderful. And I was just one thinking that there is also another like slightly symbolic meta element in that, you know, we we're talking about how, how in the 14th century, uh, during Christmas period, people would perform biblical stories, trying to recreate them with the limited knowledge that they have of those times at the time. And now we're talking, we're ending with this mm. idea of like sort Whoa. of historically informed <laughs> <laughs> performance, yeah. which is another form of creativity and storytelling throughout the history. Right. Um Okay, so I think we will probably end here, though I do have one last question for you, James, and that is, uh, well, actually, two last questions. One is, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Because I Ooh. think we, um, so as listeners uh, tuning in now, know it's exactly a month before Christmas Eve, um, and so we will soon get very much into the mood of that, and I think it's it's nice to think about how um, how we share a lot of that joy, but there's also always like something very personal or something specific that we we look forward to. Um, so yeah, what's your favorite tradition, James? What are you most looking forward to? Well, I love cooking and baking, and so oh. for me it would be a good steamed figgy pudding uh, with brandy sauce. Oh. I don't think you can beat that. That sounds amazing. I don't think I've ever had that. So, well, you should come over. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. And yeah, um, and we wish everyone a lovely December and yeah, uh, happy December. Everybody. Happy December. <laughs> happy waiting for Christmas time. Yeah. And um, and we finish. We will finish with a tune from your own album if i'm correct no, no i'm sorry uh, but it's um it hasn't been released but it is my group right yes so uh, so it is about origin. It. um well it's uh this one is a 14th century motet it's a piece of polyphony and in four parts and the text this one is super dramatic uh, i i love this because it starts with a narration of the epiphany story the epiphany is uh, the the feast um which um it uses the story of Herod and the Magi, and it's a narration of the Magi visiting Herod. And in the second stanza, the music changes pace, it becomes a lot faster, and we have the voice of Herod himself, direct uh, speech, which one of these medieval singers would have performed. They, they would have incarnated Herod in this really dramatic way. So I thought this was a nice little parallel to that story of the uh, Herod running through the, running through the church for the Feast of Fools. And, and he says, where is he born, this prince, this king of the Jews? And um, uh, surely he's not going to take away my kingdom. And before that happens, I will sedulously kill the newborn son within my borders. What a lovely sentiment and already to show it. But yeah, but wonderful. Thank you again, James, very much. Uh, let's listen to the tune. And, and once again, thank you all for listening to us. This is the Music Group uh, Talk Show. Uh, I am the communi uh, Research Communication Radio Show Radio Nova. Stay tuned and have a lovely weekend. The music talk show. The music talk show. The music talk show.